0: This is a Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, covering our books on the environment, politics, religion, history, law, and biography. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Helen Fry, author of Women in Intelligence, The Hidden History of Two World Wars. Historian and biographer Helen Fry is the author of The Walls Have Ears, Spy Master, MI9, and more than 20 books on intelligence, prisoners of war, and the social history of World War II. Welcome to the podcast, Helen. I look forward to our conversation about women in intelligence.
1: It's great to be on the podcast. Thank you for uh, having me on.
0: Women in Intelligence The Hidden History of Two World Wars is a groundbreaking history of women in British intelligence revealing their pivotal role across the first half of the 20th century. Many history lovers are fascinated with stories of espionage, especially during this period. Yet many of us haven't heard about women's contributions to intelligence operations during the two world wars. Why is this the case?
1: What I discovered during my research is that the stories of women in intelligence has largely been obscured by official secrecy it's true also for many of the men who were involved in intelligence although we have a lot more of those stories than we do for the women and i felt it was important the stories that i discovered to put them in one book because i wasn't sure whether my colleagues my historian friends and colleagues would actually include these stories if they were doing a similar history and I feel it's it's great, great to have done that.
0: I was really astounded by the numerous roles that women had from administrative work to being part of covert operations, serving as tactical leads for naval and aerial operations and more, as well as, you know, as you just mentioned, the ways in which these stories have been obscured by official secrecy and these women's vows of secrecy that, you know, maybe they never told their families that they were involved in these efforts. I'm wondering um, if you could talk more about what access to the documents that you did have, and did you conduct interviews with those who were still alive?
1: So across 20, 25 years of my research, I've been working a lot on The Files of Military Intelligence, and they're absolutely fascinating. Most people think they're incredibly dull and you're wading through a lot of boring material. But actually, the gems and the stories are there. And it's during that wider telling of various stories of intelligence and espionage that I uncovered some of the stories of the women. They're deeply hidden in files so the declassified files that we have some of it's quite accidental some of the stories that I've uncovered but I did interview some veterans over the years yes and I've held back those interviews until now for this particular book not that I realized even five years ago that I would write this book but for me it's incredibly important because not many women or even male historians in the UK actually work on military intelligence files. And so I felt that their stories would be, continue to be obscured actually. And they did, as you said, take that vow of secrecy to the grave, many of them. And many of them wouldn't talk to me until they knew their particular files had been declassified. So what's emerged for me is something that's extraordinarily exciting really exciting and inspirational. And in many ways, the conclusions that are woven throughout the book, I wasn't expecting to come to those conclusions. And one of them was just how so many women across uniformed and civilian intelligence agencies actually became experts and invaluable
0: Can you talk a little bit more about how women initially became recruited or involved in espionage during the First World War?
1: The recruitment process, as I discovered across, particularly in the early days across the First World War, could be various. There weren't very many women in Army, Air, or Naval intelligence, not at all. There were just a few that I talk about, a group of women called Hushwax, who effectively go to France by 1917, and they're involved in kind of decoding and code-breaking, but they're incredibly rare. There's only a dozen of them. In the intelligence agencies like MI5, which is in charge of home security in the UK, we do have women even before the First World War, but they're not really, there aren't many of them, and they're not really doing anything beyond secretarial and administrative roles. But very quickly, they do become experts in their fields, and I start to uncover that. I think for me, one of the most interesting group of women, and they served in the First World War and going forwards, are the women of the Secret Intelligence Service, what we also call here MI6, and that's responsible for security, UK security abroad, really, and conducts operations abroad. They really have this for me, the most surprising hidden history, many of them were so-called secretaries. But when you look under the surface, they weren't secretaries at all. They're working out of passport offices and embassies across Western Europe and elsewhere. And they are running spy networks for the chief of station. So for the head of MI6 in that city. So for me, that was an extraordinary discovery. Mm-hmm.
0: These are really fascinating stories, especially because I know that you mentioned in the book, MI6 rarely declassifies files. It's mainly MI5 that you noted that does that. And so the the fact that we do, that you have uncovered these stories is really amazing.
1: Yes. So it is patchy. We have more knowledge about some women than others. And it's largely accidental, really, because... Some of the women, if they were involved in key events of the first half of the 20th century, so from World War I into the 20s and 30s, they might be involved in incidents that are reported in the Foreign Office files. Now, our Foreign Office files are largely declassified. MI6 never declassifies its files, so I've had no access to those. In some cases, and again, it's quite rare, I have been in touch with the families of women of MI6, but the families know very little, even less than I do, because their mothers, aunts, grandmothers never spoke about it. So we have a bit of a patchy view. Nevertheless, occasionally you have correspondence from MI6 to another department like MI5 or the War Office, and that survives in the files of MI5 or the War Office. And if those have been declassified, occasionally you get some of the MI6 correspondence, and that can be really exciting, because, precisely because it never declassifies its files and we have no access to its archives. Mm-hmm. And in
0: the very start of the book, you do tell the story of nurse Edith Cavell, who's involved in some of these amateur spy networks, espionage or organizations that you had mentioned. Can you talk more about how nurses often served as double agents and then headed these espionage organizations during the First World War?
1: Yes, that's something that's beginning to emerge. As again, I wasn't expecting that in the case of Edith Cavell, who's already serving as a nurse in Belgium. So that is not her cover. She's in there before the First World War. But when the First World War breaks out, she decides to stay in Belgium and work as a nurse and help wounded French and British soldiers. The Germans have occupied Belgium and the occasional parts of of northern France and Luxembourg as well, of course. So she decides not to come back to the UK, she decides to stay where she is, and then she starts with others to smuggle some of these soldiers and French resistance fighters back to their own countries. And that in itself was hugely dangerous. But what I really discovered, and I think I'm proud that this was possible for the book, I discovered she actually was a spy, and that's been a huge debate in the UK for almost 100 years. And it's something, which, of course, she paid with her life in October 1915, because the Germans did execute her. They believed she was guilty of espionage. But we didn't really have the documentation until I was able to work on archives in London and Brussels. And I was able to find definitively the answer. She was, in fact, a spy mistress, which means that she founded she established her own spy network with a belgian architect and together they ran this intelligence organization and smuggled intelligence out to the british so incredibly brave so courageous
0: mm-hmm. that's amazing that you uncovered that she actually did was acting as a spy and I'm I'm also really fascinated that you write about the really fascinating materials that they use to convey secret messages, such as knitted messages into jumpers, secret ink, and cookery books, to name a few. Can you tell us more about the materials that, that these spies and spy mistresses use to convey information?
1: It's fascinating that as early as the First World War, and probably before, invisible ink was being used in letters and correspondence, I actually came across a file which had examples, samples of invisible ink, and it dated to the First World War. And this is is rare to find in declassified files, and it's quite um, a magical moment in many ways, and you don't quite believe that you're handling such extraordinary original material that's over 100 years old because you're allowed to to touch the files and, and the material in it so for me that was really exciting to think that these are real messages and they also conveyed messages tiny messages they wrote tiny tiny messages handwritten which they folded almost to the size of a postage stamp which they hid in a sort of envelope and then Many of the women, they were kind of invisible to the Germans. The Germans didn't expect women who were cycling around the country that was being occupied. They just thought they were going to the bakery or maybe they're visiting relatives. But they're cycling around, they've hidden little messages inside their bread basket, they've hidden tiny messages in their corsets, in their underwear, all kinds of places, in broom handles, anywhere to be able to transport these messages and they went out on secret routes really whenever they could into neutral holland holland was not occupied by the germans in the first world war and then those messages would make it back to the british intelligence office and some of those messages not just the invisible ink but those messages i worked on as well and they are utterly extraordinary they just sit in the palm. They're so tiny in the palm of your hand. And I think, you know, what kind of journey that message has had? They are real, original messages.
0: That's so fascinating. I'm I'm really interested in the physicality of, of experiencing some of these materials. Uh, the image of, of these really small messages in the palm of your hand is really a powerful one. And I'm wondering if you can uh, speak more to the ways in which women moved inconspicuously through these neutral territories. At, at the beginning of, of the book, you mentioned that even though many of these stories are unknown to the public, people still, from figures like Matahari, have this sensational view of, of women spies and their use of their sexuality or kind of the femme fatale stereotype. Yet at the same time, this book shows that many of these women moved very secretly and inconspicuously through not only places but their information moved in this way. Um, can you talk a
1: little bit more more about that? I think it's because they are ordinary women behind enemy lines. They are not the Mataharis, the glamorous, exotic dancers, the femme fatale. They are. Women as young as 18, sometimes actually as young as 16, who are still at school, they are varying these messages around, sometimes walking, sometimes cycling. They are very much part of the developing intelligence methods, really. But even up to women in their 80s, and you mentioned the coded messages, they were knitting outside their cottages, some of them. And they were knitting codes of what they could see behind enemy lines. And in particular, the movement of German troops across Belgium, because the the German troops, to go to the front line in France, they had to cross Belgium from Germany. They couldn't go straight from Germany into France. So that was ideal. If you could set up observation posts, and there were men and women doing this, but the men, of course, would be much younger still of school age, or they would be much older at retirement age because men of eligible age would be fighting. So they would stick out. You know, if you saw those in enemy territory, you think the Germans would think, oh God, could that be a spy? Because why isn't he in his regiment? Why isn't he fighting? So the women had that extraordinary ability to move around because they were not expected to fight. There was no legal framework for them to carry arms and in fact as you would have picked up in the book they were not protected by the geneva convention so they were doubly at risk if they're captured carrying guns or even not i'm not saying that all of them did in the first world war but they had to be really careful if they were caught in terms of espionage, they couldn't pretend that they were on leave from a regiment because they were not fighting. So not only are they largely invisible, but the risks that they take are so much greater. And I just love their stories. I love the fact that they are doing everyday events like knitting outside their homes, but they are watching the train networks. They are watching what armaments, reinforcements the Germans are moving on these trucks you know these greatly long trains what horses and artillery are being moved and they knit various codes about what they're seeing into a jumper or a scarf and that ordinary item gets sent over the wire from behind enemy lines to the British, the Germans don't suspect. They just think it's a jumper or a scarf. They're knitting for their family. I, I just love those stories. It's so, so clever.
0: Those invisible networks that you're talking about are so fascinating. And But as you mentioned, if if a woman was caught in espionage, the risk was so great. I There was an interesting note in the book that you mention some men actually dressed as women to take advantage of the their invisibility moving and and to be less conspicuous which i which i thought was also such an interesting note in the book
1: yes i thought that was important to put in and it's something that happened in the second world war as well there was this conscious knowledge for those networks working behind enemy lines that if you had to smuggle someone through that territory or if they had a really important mission it didn't happen very often as far as we could tell, but they could, you know, dress as a woman and be inconspicuous.
0: That's so fascinating. I'm, I'm wondering if we can turn to the interim period between uh, the two world wars. And in this period between the Treaty of Versailles and the start of the Second World War, you tell the story of the SIS secretaries. What were the SIS secretaries and why do they provide such a good snapshot of this period?
1: The SIS secretaries are working for the Secret Intelligence Service, what today we call MI6, and they are working largely out of British passport offices across Europe and also in Turkey, in Istanbul, in the Middle East, in all kinds of places and in Scandinavia, Norway. And traditionally, we have just thought that they were secretaries. But over the course of my research, I've discovered that under the surface, in fact, they're not secretaries. They're not sat writing reports, or they actually might be writing some intelligence reports. But by and large, they are running spy networks alongside and on an equal level to their chief of station. So the head of... The station there, the MI6 spymaster, if you like, was in this period male in the 1920s and 30s. I did uncover a couple of female heads of station in the Second World War, incredibly rare, completely hidden by official secrecy to date. We had no understanding that women actually began to rise within the ranks at this time because it's just been, you know, unknown. But again, they are operating traditional espionage spycraft, they're using invisible ink, they're recruiting their own contacts and agents, but importantly as well, they not only become expert as agent handlers, but they also become experts in the areas where they're stationed. And for example, I focus on three women who worked out of Vienna, Spy master called Thomas Kendrick. I published Spy Master with Yale, of course, just a couple of years ago. And what they were doing was gathering this expertise on the political and geographical areas. So they become so valuable when we come to the Second World War because they know Eastern Europe like the back of their hand. One of them is an expert on Italy and the Italian Navy. Unbelievable. This, you just when we think that these women were were just clerical staff in the office, they're not. They are actually amongst some of the most experienced experts of the Secret Intelligence Service. And for me, that is, well, truly inspirational, actually. And again, it's going back to that theme running through what we've been talking about that all of this has been obscured by official secrecy. They were not sat at their desk with a pen or pencil and paper. They were really running those important spy networks in the 1920s and 30s and a, a safeguarding democracy because you know Western democracy was under threat after the First World War. During
0: World War II, I, I know you just talked about Kind of the great expertise that these women brought to the British war effort and also in the interim period in their espionage efforts. But at the start of World War II, did the role of women in intelligence change at all from the previous war? Were there any large shifts as the method and shape of war changed?
1: When you come to the Second World War, you do have far more women. I mean, it's escalated so many the multiple. I'm not sure what the multiples will be. I'm not sure if anyone's actually studied that, but it, it it's huge. You have so many more women in the uniformed forces: army, air, navy. And they go on to do, as I uncovered, extraordinary things in their own right. Again, they become experts, sometimes heads of section, intelligence sections. So certainly the code-breaking sites, famously like Bletchley Park, and there are the equivalents in America, but at Bletchley Park, there were just under 10,000 personnel, two-thirds of whom at least were women. And that's true of some of the other intelligence operations that I've written about. We discovered that in the end, around two thirds of them are women and women were attached to the intelligence corps, which is army intelligence. And so really, that's where we noticed the biggest change. Hard to say for MI5. What we do know is that MI5, the security service, is actually monitoring very real threats on UK soil primarily, but not only, from German spies that might be infiltrating the country. But we also had a right-wing movement called the British Union of Fascists and a number of other very right-wing groups that were deemed to be potentially pro-Hitler, pro-Nazi. And a number of women very successfully infiltrated those organizations. They were also still monitoring the communist threat but we don't really know in terms of numbers and how much progress they made because that information has not been declassified. We don't have very much actually. We have material on the double agents, but we really don't have a wider view because MI5 only declassifies some of its files. And with the secret intelligence service, well, we're back to official secrecy. It's really difficult to tell what the vast majority of the women did. We do have glimpses, and you will see that in the book, but they are glimpses and even that, you think, oh my goodness, she was doing this or she was doing that. And it just makes you think how awe-inspiring this is and how many women's stories and achievements we still don't know about. But we've got a glimpse, and I think that is exciting.
0: I, I would agree that that this glimpse is exciting, and and can only imagine the future where perhaps more of these stories will be uncovered. I did want to uh, mention Bletchley Park, which you had talked about briefly, and I I was really it it was really re- remarkable that the number of women up to two-thirds in the in the workforce by Edward Travis, you had mentioned in the book. Um yeah. especially before D-Day, a couple a couple years before that. Can you tell our listeners more about women's involvement in naval operations during World War II?
1: Yeah, so as you say, we know a lot about Bletchley Park. But there are, you know, a whole raft of these women who were involved in naval intelligence, and they've really been underrepresented in books of the Second World War. There are a whole trunch of files which have been declassified for quite a long time, but historians haven't really necessarily looked at them. You know, some of the volumes are so thick, they're a bit awe-inspiring, and you think, goodness me. But they are there and there are lists of personnel and what they did. And one of the groups that I did discover were the first female interrogators of the Second World War ever used in intelligence was the women of Naval Intelligence at at two or three secret sites outside London. It was here that they were eavesdropping. They were bugging the conversations of German prisoners of war for intelligence. After their kind of relaxed interrogation, they're giving up things to the hidden microphones and then Hitler's top commanders in the stately home. And it was the women of naval intelligence, a very small team, that were the interrogators. And one of the files said, and it's very much of its time, and we have to bear that in mind, said that the right kind of woman makes as good an interrogator as a man. And that realisation in the wartime was was a significant shift because interrogation was very much a male world. And the German prisoners expected to be interrogated by two men, two or three men, but in walked two women. And it it kind of completely throws them off their guard. Very clever understanding of psychology. And then you have another group of the women in, in the Admiralty that I write about in Naval Intelligence. They were known as the secret ladies. And they were doing special decoding and were linked to operations with Bletchley Park. They weren't working specifically for Bletchley Park, but much of their material analysis was interlinked. And finally, I would just say on, on this section, because of course it'd be great <laughs> for our audience to read the book, I discovered that it was a woman in Naval Intelligence, who was in charge of, geographically in charge of the whole of the area of the D-Day landings. And when I read that, I had to read it a couple of times. I wasn't too sure that I'd actually read it correctly, you know, in amongst this narrative. And I just sat there and thought, wow. Yeah, that has just been, again, hidden. Nobody's discovered that before. And those are the kind of stories that are emerging, which for me makes this book so exciting. And, and it was a journey, a journey. I wasn't expecting to discover all of these, well, truly amazing contributions.
0: Many women enjoyed long careers spanning decades in intelligence, but you do note that they operated amid sexism and inequality, fighting for recognition and and equal pay, what happened to these women after the Second World War ended?
1: We, again, have a very patchy view, and it, it was difficult for some of them, you're quite right, in terms of a largely patriarchal sort of society, even in civilian life. You know, the pay and the roles that they could do were the same in the sense that they were restrictive, what I discovered was it was mainly the women in uniform. So in army air or naval intelligence, particularly if they got married, some of them actually married American service personnel. We've got some lovely stories about that. They didn't all go in the book actually. And of course, once they got married and particularly when they were expecting their first child, they would have to leave the uniformed services. But I've discovered a more mixed picture with mi5 and mi6 because some of the women i focused on did have children or they were widowed and they were allowed to still continue to work for those services and because of the very secret nature of mi5 and mi6 i don't think we really know i think the progress i don't know about in terms of ranks and what they achieve because we have a very small picture in the cold war we don't and beyond we really don't know what they have actually achieved it's it's secrecy again but again we get that glimpse that women did not automatically have to leave once they got married or they were widowed or they had children and and that for me provides a much deeper understanding already just on the patchy information we have that we can no longer just say women were restricted totally and had to go back to their old life after the war. It wasn't true for all of the women. Some of them, their expertise was so crucial that the intelligence services kept them on.
0: That's so fascinating that from this history, we get a much richer picture of women's contributions to British intelligence, even even amidst this background of sexism. But, you know, as you mentioned, these women were still kept on because the the product, what they were delivering, their intelligence was so important. And I'm wondering, are there any stories that were really quite remarkable, but just didn't make it into the book? I, I know that you had mentioned some ab- about British women intelligence officers who married Americans, But is there anything else that you wish had just made it in into the
1: book? Well, there was so much that, in a sense, I did have to make choices. And I had to make choices on which women to sort of represent each of the chapter sections across those two world wars and the interwar period. So, no, I think the book is a full history as the book is. I think it's always had to be a matter of choice. And I think what you actually said, we get a deep, richer insight. And for me, that's exciting in itself. I don't have any regrets that there were other stories I should have put in. There are always going to be other files that I couldn't have reflected, some of them in significant detail. And there just isn't the space to be able to tell those stories. But that hopefully will be picked up by other historians and they will contribute and add to what has begun here. It is
0: telling that, you know, you, you reflect on the choices and the stories that are included in this book. And they really are so powerful. And I think from this com- short conversation on the podcast, we can see how this book really does celebrate and bring to life the stories of women intelligence officers. and despite their challenges, demonstrates just how impactful and pervasive their presence was in the British war effort.
1: Yeah, and one of the other things I think is an understanding that it wasn't as black and white as a narrative that I'd been handed down. You know, I I came to the research, perhaps with my own stereotypes, about the restrictions on women. And when I started to uncover the fact across this sort of 20-year career that it wasn't quite like that, And writing this book, uncovering so many more stories, I'm really pleased that that had to be done. And that there were men working in intelligence, heads of their own sections, who believed in the ability of women and pushed for the ability for women. And particularly within MI5, there was a whole raft of discussions in the late 1920s about equal pay, so far of its, ahead of its time if you think about what was happening just generally in civilian life. So I always think, although we can't necessarily judge by totally by today's standards, for their time, if we think about the context of their time, much of what went on behind the scenes in those shadowy worlds, the women were making progress. Yes, it was slow. And yes, they still had a fight. But there were men willing to fight for them. And I don't think the whole story has emerged yet.
0: You mentioned that you're really pleased with the history and it is really such a remarkable book. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with our listeners about this fantastic new book?
1: Maybe I could just mention one very briefly, uh, woman a baroness. She married a Hungarian baron, actually. And this has got to be one of the most extraordinary discoveries, I think, of the book. Along with, with Edith Cavell finally finding the fact that she actually was a spy spy mistress. The baroness, she was British. She was the subject of the only spy swap of the Second World War. She must have been, I'm not going to give her name, she, <laughs> because they can read the book if that's okay. Yes, encourage you to read the book. She must have been so valuable. And we think of spy swaps of the cold war and all those famous films now like the bridge of spies, but there was one spy swap in the second world war and it was a woman. I mean, I just think how exciting is that? that's
0: so exciting and and thank you so much you know for taking the time to join us on this episode of the Yale University Press podcast this has overall been such an exciting discussion and i do encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of women in intelligence if they're interested in learning more about the specific stories of women but also just in general their groundbreaking involvement in the first two world wars Women in Intelligence, The Hidden History of Two World Wars by Helen Fry is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.